Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Continue forward in Luke chapter 22, in the Garden of Gethsemane still. Verses 47 through 43, you see there underlined in your sermon notes the verses of focus today. The title of today's message, To Kill or Heal in the Shadow of the Dark Kiss. I'll read from verse 31 through to verse 62. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, nothing. Then he said to them, but now, he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then... His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. 
But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So with the Lord's garden agony behind him, having been greatly strengthened by an angel from heaven, he does rise up and go forth to face this hour of darkness. Still, though, with almighty mercy and love shining from him. His disciples, though, still murky under prayerlessness and a brief fitful sleep, arise to go from one fog to another. The same lack of faith that led to sleep instead of prayer will now show itself with the impotence of fleshly violence instead of the almighty power of mercy and love. What can we learn from Jesus? How are we like these weak disciples? How can we change Offering kind touch instead of bloody cuts when faced with betrayal and worldly threats. These are the questions before us in today's text. If we would learn to be like Christ instead of like the disciples. So the text today is uh, this scene where Judas comes with this multitude to arrest Jesus. Certainly murder of a sort was on Peter's mind, but Jesus would heal instead in the wake of this dark kiss and this betrayal. So in verse 47, we'll talk about the multitude. In verse 47, we'll look at the dark kiss. Verse 48, we'll see Christ's humble rebuke of all the evils present in this scene. We'll see the disciples respond And Christ's response, um, it's beautiful to look at how he corrects everything with a simple action. And then he talks to those who've come out to him, essentially rebuking them as well. And there is this hour of darkness, this power of darkness that we need to consider. And then as usual, some questions to know and to love and to obey God. So verse 47 says, And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude. So Judas had left the Last Supper. You recall that, yes? He went and met with the leaders who had paid him to betray Jesus. And the armed band was then assembled to go and apprehend Jesus. Who were the members of this multitude? Later in this section, Luke writes in verse 52, quote, The chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders were present in this multitude. 
John writes, quote, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. It's in John chapter 18, verse 3. John later calls the leader of the Roman troops a chiliarch, leader of a thousand Roman troops, or a commander of a Roman cohort. That's in verse 12 of John chapter 18. Mark also mentions that the scribes were represented in this group. So this multitude <clears throat> included leaders and armed men from both the Jews and the Romans. Alfred Edersheim wrote a wonderful work, The Life and Times of the Messiah. And here's a quote from his work, extensively studying the times and the life of Christ. We can now understand the progress of events in the fortress of Antonia, close to the temple and connected with it by two stairs, lay the Roman garrison. But during the feast, the temple itself was guarded by an armed cohort consisting of from 400 to 600 men, so as to prevent or quell any tumult amongst the numerous pilgrims. It would be to the captain of this cohort that the chief priests and leaders of the Pharisees would, in the first place, apply for an armed guard to effect the arrest of Jesus on the ground that it might lead to some popular tumult. This, without necessarily having to to state the charge that was to be brought against him, which might have led to other complications. Although St. John speaks of the band by this Greek word, which always designates a cohort, in this case the cohort, the definite article making it is the cohort of the temple, Yet there is no reason for believing that the whole cohort was necessarily sent. Still, its commander would scarcely have sent a strong detachment out of the temple and on what might lead to a riot without having first referred to the procurator, Pontius Pilate. And if further evidence were required, it would be in the fact that the band was led not by a centurion, but by a chiliarch, which, as there were no intermediate grades in the Roman army, must represent one of the six tribunes attached to each legion. This also explains not only the apparent preparedness of Pilate to sit in judgment early next morning, but also how Pilate's wife may have been disposed for those dreams about Jesus which so affrighted her. This Roman detachment, armed with swords and staves, with with the latter of which Pilate on other occasions also directed his soldiers to, to attack them who raised a tumult, was accompanied by servants from the high priest's palace and other Jewish officers to direct the arrest of Jesus. They bore torches and lamps placed on the top of poles so as to prevent any possible concealment. So, Judas arrives with an overwhelming show of human force. The loudest message to Jesus and his disciples is the sound of many boots and the sight of cudgels swords and helmets glistening under the light of the moon and the torches. In spite of over three years of peaceful ministry, the Jews and the Romans treat Jesus and his followers like violent criminals. Not long awake, the eleven face an immediate threat to their confused lives and their misled messianic hopes. Jesus, on the other hand, knowing all, Strengthened with almighty resolve, embracing his dreadful path to victory, goes forth to give up his life 
and to secure the real, invincible messianic hope. Verse 47, we see the dark kiss. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Proverbs 27, verse 6, this great contrast. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Judas certainly displays this, does he not? He was not the first, though, to use deceitful kisses. False affection is the heart of the devil's scheme against mankind, brothers and sisters. Only when false affection and empty promises fail does the devil move on to overt threats and attacks. What do we see in the garden? The serpent approaches the woman as her friend with feigned innocence, asking just a friendly question. Don't mind me. I'm just your friendly garden snake here to have a conversation with you. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Jacob also used a false kiss to secure his deception of his father. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Think of it. You think back over this Passion Week of Christ our Lord. It's likely that this traitor Judas, as he gave this dark kiss to Jesus, it's likely Judas would have smelled the beautiful spikenard scent so strong, still present on Jesus' body from Mary's worship earlier that week. She who gave Jesus sincere affection and love on the day that we're told Judas's soul finally ruptured and gave up on Jesus. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. This is the account from John chapter 12. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So you recall this fellow who'd been in the grave for some days, yes? He's now eating dinner with them. No wonder Mary is so filled with joy. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. See, this is not what a kiss is for, what Judas did. Our affections were never meant to be used as tools of deception, tools of flattery, but rather simply as honest expressions of affection. The honest kiss, the real affections, 
belong first and most fully to the people of God, to the redeemed of the Lord. Why else would we see in Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 3, and 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul say the exact same thing. Greet one another with a holy kiss. A holy kiss. A kiss that comes from a heart of real covenant love and commitment. That's a holy kiss. Peter calls it a kiss of love. He who observed the kiss of hatred in this garden. True affection belongs to us, brothers and sisters. While the devil and his Judas minions give unholy kisses of hatred, we, by God's grace, we the people of God, can always give holy kisses of love. Agape affection on display for no other reason than love. How does Christ respond to Judas? Jesus said to him, in verse 48, Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Our Lord, it seems, pierces Judas' heart with this discordant question. How can one of the twelve who had been with Jesus through the years, used the sign of love insincerely to accomplish such hatred. In contrast, though, let us once again remember that Jesus used a sign of love in sincerity as He spoke with Judas for the last time at the Last Supper. Then leading back on Jesus' breast, this is from John 13. He said to him, Lord, who is it? They were discussing who the betrayer was, remember? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Jesus' message to his other disciples about who the traitor was, was a message of real love and friendship that he delivered to Judas at that moment. Jesus was Judas' friend to the end. He even said to him, friend, we see in one of the other accounts. Well, how do uh, the disciples respond to all of this? In verse 49 and 50, we're told, When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, we know from John chapter 18 who this person was. Matthew and Mark and Luke do not mention the name, but John does. It was Peter. Peter who cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, this man, this person named Malchus. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So here we know Peter drew his sword and cut off Malchus' ear. We're not told if he was trying to kill Malchus or if 
by chance, a fisherman was so good with his sword that he could cut off the ear. Certainly seems like Peter was wildly striking with whatever outcome he could achieve at this time. So this impulsive, self-reliant Peter, what we see here is he's moving by the arm of the flesh. That's what's on display here for us. I do think, though, that Peter is motivated by love, at least partially by love for Jesus, but also by self-preservation. And he's deceived as to the means of the kingdom. It's an important thing we see here. He doesn't understand the way the kingdom of God comes into the earth. So his faith fails, and he strikes this wild blow from his wild yet untamed flesh. And so there stands Malchus, this man bleeding, his right ear gone. Surely more violence would have followed had Jesus not immediately intervened. You can only imagine how the swords and the cudgels would have flown at this point. Jeremiah 17 talks to us about the arm of the flesh. I hope you will hear this today, brothers and sisters. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Those who do not repent of fleshly means will eventually have a heart that departs from God. We see this in today's text. Peter and the eleven eventually learned this lesson though. And they gave up on the impotence and the ugliness of the arm of the flesh. And this is one of the key lessons that we must learn as human beings in this world. And we will see the disciples learning this lesson from God as they go through this entire event. The scattering that takes place is meant to instruct them and us about the outcome of the arm of the flesh. And now Jesus responds, so rich, so beautiful, so filled with glory and meaning. He answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. You see, Jesus is responding to all the evils that are on display here. To the darkness of betrayal and the darkness of the arm of the flesh. Both are corrected by what he does here. In this one act, with a simple phrase, permit even this. Our glorious Lord reveals his plan for the victory of almighty mercy over all forms of evil within us and around us. Instead of his anger bursting forth in immediate violence like what we saw from Peter, Jesus expresses his hatred, his pure hatred of evil with an act of divine, miraculous healing, overcome, overcoming both evils with his good. Romans 12 tells us, Repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. 
Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we see this contrast perfectly displayed here in this episode, do we not? Temporarily, Peter and the disciples overcome by evil. But Jesus displaying how evil is overcome. By good. Matthew Henry says, Christ here gave us an illustrious example to his own rule of doing good to them that hate us, as afterwards he did of praying for them that despitefully use us. Those who render good for evil do as Christ did. One would have thought that this generous piece of kindness should have overcome them, that such coals heaped on their heads should have melted them that they could not have bound him as a malefactor who had approved himself such a benefactor. But their hearts were hardened. The dangers of a hardened heart should be before us all here, brothers and sisters. That even such a, a glorious act could be no more powerful than to prevent an all-out immediate riot of bloodshed. That such a glorious act of the Lord Jesus Christ did not lead this multitude to fall on their faces and worship Him as the Son of God. So, the disciples, we need to remember, they were this fleeing process was beginning as this healing occurred. Even as Jesus, we see in John 18, he requested their freedom. So he requested their freedom, and they also ran away. None chose to stand by his side. At this, his moment of arrest. Not one of them. Those he had just spoken to during the Last Supper and said, you are the ones who continued with me in my trials. That was no longer true of them in this moment. They departed. They left. They ran away. Mark uh, chapter 14 verse 50 says it so clearly and so sadly. Then they all forsook him and fled. So Peter gets the notoriety in that failure, but they all did it. Maybe he was the leader in forsaking Jesus, but they all did it. So we need to see here, where does the arm of the flesh lead? They all forsook Jesus and they all ran away from him. So as we proceed through the book of of Luke and into the book of Acts, we will see the Lord bringing them back together again into a humbled and mighty band of brothers, no longer depending upon themselves so much, but more reliant upon Almighty God his power poured out in them and through them. Even as Jesus 
shows mercy to this crowd of evil, he does also correct them. Verses 52 and 53. Mercy does speak truth. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So, even as Jesus has rebuked his disciples for their violent response, he also rebukes Judas and his evil band for their dark ways. He's corrected his disciples, we know from other gospels, regarding the misuse of the sword. And he also rebukes the violent multitude that's present there as well. The devil is the original robber. He is the thief of thieves. The Jews and the Romans were the real thieves here on the devil's leash. And as we know, Judas was the thief in their midst. As usual, the liars accuse the honest of lying. And the violent treat the meek as dangerous malefactors. This is the devil's M.O. God judges justly. And Jesus, we know, Peter comments on this in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 we'll talk about that more he saw this whole thing and he knows he, he wrote he saw he knew that Jesus entrusted himself to God who judges justly Christ had walked in the light before them for years never displaying a tendency towards a violent movement and now they're treating him as a scheming violent threat also, we see here this wonderful truth, so encouraging to us, that Jesus here acknowledges that according to God's perfect plan, there is an hour and power of darkness, a time when God unbridles the devil and his minions for a bit for God's greater glory and for the instruction of his saints, for us to grow. The devil and his minions are God's tool. Sometimes the hour of darkness, the power of darkness is unleashed upon us, his people, to show us how we rely on the arm of the flesh. Matthew Henry says, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. How hard soever it may seem that I should be thus exposed, I submit, for so it is determined. This is the hour allowed you to have your will against me. This is an hour appointed me to reckon for it. Now the power of darkness, Satan, the ruler of the darkness of this world, is permitted to do his worst, to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, and I resolve to acquiesce. Let him do his worst. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he sees that his day, his hour, is coming. Psalm 37, verse 13. Matthew Henry going on. Let this quiet us under the prevalency of the church's enemies. Let it quiet us in a dying hour that it is but an hour that is permitted for the triumph of our adversary. A short time. A limited time. Number two, it is their hour which is appointed them and in which they are permitted to try their strength that omnipotence 
may be the more glorified in their fall. Number three, it is the power of darkness that rides master. And darkness must give way to light. And the power of darkness be made to truckle to the prince of light. Christ was willing to wait for his triumphs until his warfare was accomplished. And we must be so too. Amen. So some questions, brothers and sisters, to make these truths our own, to apply these to our lives today. The first question for us is, uh, do you see how the evil one works here? We're taught in the Word of God that the devil has his schemes. There's a way that he does his, his dirty work. And he'll change it up sometimes, but it's essentially overall a scheme that is revealed to us throughout Scripture. In this particular account, we see false kisses, and we see an unnecessary show of force, and we see both of these things projected strongly, obtruded into the lives of Christians to tempt them to give way to the arm of the flesh. Essentially tempting us to behave the way that the deceived believe we really are. Those people who arrived that night, they believed, they'd been deceived into believing this was a violent group they were dealing with. And Peter proved it to him, to them, didn't he? Do you think there would have been any violence if during the daytime they came up and asked Jesus to just come in and be arrested? We don't know, do we? But probably not. This temptation that was placed before Peter was more than he could bear at that time. And you think the devil doesn't have a sense? The minions of hell don't have a sense of who we really are? Perhaps knowing us even better than we know ourselves. So Peter failed and he confirmed, at least in the minds of the deceived, that Jesus was leading a violent movement. And you can imagine this event <clears throat> would have been told over and over again. And you know how the devil is. He'll conveniently leave out the part about Jesus healing Malchus. I bet that was the most beautiful right ear you could ever imagine. Did he pick it up and put it back on? Or did he just give him a new one? I, I didn't see in the text where we got an answer to that question. Jesus gave this man a fresh new ear, healed him right there on the spot. <laughs> Jesus was not leading a violent movement. <clears throat> Next, do you see the arm of the flesh at work in you when you are mistreated, threatened, betrayed? Please say yes. <laughs> because this... This thing rises up in all of us when this happens. And, and what you're being tempted to do is to repay evil for evil. Now, did you know that anger is a human capacity that is, when we're first angry, not necessarily good or evil until we kind of sort through it? Did you know that? Did you know that it's wrong not to be angry sometimes? 
I mean, if you're indifferent over evil, there's something wrong with you. Right? And of course, you should never take pleasure in evil. Right? So when we are exposed to evil, when we are mistreated or others are mistreated, becoming angry is necessary if we are to walk in righteousness. But the question is, what will we do with that disapproval and that displeasure that comes to us at that time if we are partaking of the disapproval and the displeasure of Jesus Christ Himself? Well, we have our answer, don't we? We will... We will heal. We will not cut. That's that's the difference. The anger that flowed from Jesus in this moment was a constructive mercy. To use the words of David Pallison. It was a constructive mercy. And we can be the same way. We can be the same way by His grace. I hope you will remember where the arm of the flesh leads. When this wells up inside of you, this anger that goes wrong, this anger that's misdirected and has the improper vector, because you know everything about anger has both a magnitude and a direction, a target and a level of force. When it rises up in you, And it goes bad. This arm of the flesh response. I hope you'll remember where it leads if if it doesn't get checked in your life. It leads to forsaking Jesus and his people. Because we see that the disciples actually were not even together with one another again for quite some time in terms of all 11 of them. They forsook Jesus. And they didn't stay together as the eleven. This is where the arm of the flesh leads. Isolation and impotence. As we read from Jeremiah chapter 17. That bush that's dried up. That's what we become like. Because you see what's happening is we're not drinking from the Holy Spirit of God. That's what happened that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. As the disciples were dry. They were not resting, abiding in Christ as He had just instructed them in John chapter 17, we see. They weren't doing it. And so they were controlled by their flesh. So do you see how Jesus conquers evil with good? And how simple this is to understand and yet how it requires a miracle to happen into our lives. 1 Peter chapter 2, written by whom? Peter. The guy with the sword in his hand in the story. He's got a sword in his hand of a different sort when he's writing this for us. He says of Jesus our Lord, certainly referring to this event, because in the phrases leading up to this, it's all about how he was threatened and didn't threaten, and he was reviled and didn't reviled. And he says this of Jesus. Who did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges justly. So there's your choice. 
right? The arm of the flesh that gives in to threatening and attacking. Misused anger. Or righteous anger released into the hand of God, leaving room for His vengeance. Entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. So, when this happens, going through the hour of darkness, the hour of the power of darkness, will not undo you. When you, if you are like Jesus, entrusting yourself to Him who judges justly, you can go through these types of moments and be like Him. If you entrust yourself to Him who judges justly. You see, the great providence of this is also true in, in your life, in my life. You've had your hours of darkness. You've been in the throes of the power of darkness in your life, whether it's your own flesh, the attacks of the enemies of God, or whether it's the minions of hell. You've been through this. We all have. Our church has been through this. This is God's providence. And we go through it entrusting ourselves to Him who judges justly. Believing in Him. Understanding more of how He works and who He is and what His purposes are. Not getting our minds tricked into the wrong kind of thinking and thus our anger directed improperly. So how can we, by God's grace, not be like the disciples in this scene? And be more like them later on. Wait for the Holy Spirit. I think that's the best answer we see from this story. As we obey God, we continue to walk in His commandments, and we cry out to Him for His Holy Spirit, and we wait for His Holy Spirit. We entrust ourselves to Him. And we trust that He will indeed, through the renewing of our minds, transform who we are so that we walk like Christ in this world that hates God, hates His people, hates His ways, and uses all of these, now that we know, predictable schemes of the devil to tempt us into joining the devil's ways. May God have mercy on that it would not be so of any one of us, but instead that we would be like Christ, remembering Him on the cross, remembering where He went to demonstrate the power of good over evil, and that we would take it as far as it has to go, just like He did, taking up our cross and following Him every day. Oh, brothers and sisters, He's so good. be like him. Amen? Amen. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we
marvel at your great kindness. Lord Jesus Christ, at your mighty mercy and perfect poise in the moment of striking swords and flying ear to pause and heal. Oh, Lord God, make us like Christ, we pray. By your Holy Spirit, would you come and subdue our souls like you did for the disciples in the days and weeks and months ahead for them. By the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, would you do this in us, we pray, oh God, in Jesus' name.